listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Bonus March of 1932, following the Great War, Congress had promised veterans of $50 to $100 payable in 1945. In the summer of 1932, 20,000 jobless veterans organized in party by the left-wing workers' ex-servicemen's league converged on Washington, D.C. Many were accompanied by their families. They set up tent cities and vowed to stay until... Congress authorized immediate payment of the bonus. On July 28th, troops commanded by General Douglas MacArthur with Colonel Dwight D. Eisenhower under his command dispersed the veterans with tear gas, burned their encampments to the ground, and ran them out of town. The AFL remained neutral in the presidential election of 1932, which pitted Hoover against the Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt. An advocate of government relief programs, and unemployment insurance. The majority of Americans who went to the polls that year wanted a radical change. They elected Roosevelt by a hefty margin, then waited to see if the new president would make a difference. When Franklin Roosevelt took office on March 4, 1933, the Depression was deeper than ever. Jobless workers and their dependents numbered about 50 million. More than 5,500 banks had failed, wiping out many depositors' life savings. Cities and towns were starting to shut down public services for lack of funds. Countless farm and home mortgages were in foreclosure. Many businesses could no longer cover their payrolls. To meet the crisis, Roosevelt immediately summoned Congress to a special session that ushered in a recovery program known as the New Deal. The New Deal was a mixed bag of reforms and emergency measures. It tightened government regulations of banks and the stock market. It created hundreds of thousands of jobs through public works projects. It revived state and local relief programs with massive federal grants that extended aid to some 27 million people, about a fifth of the national population. By 1934, other New Deal initiatives include loans and subsidies to farmers, federal insurance of bank deposits up to $5,000, federal refinancing of home mortgages, the repeal of prohibition by a constitutional amendment passed by Congress and quickly ratified by the states, and an Indian Reorganization Act that provided for Native American home rule 
ended compulsory individual allotments and allowed Indian nations to form corporations modeled on the 1922 Navajo Tribal Council. The National Industrial Recovery Act of June 1933, known as the NRA, aimed to resuscitate industrial production and profits by eliminating cutthroat competition among rival firms. The federal government suspended antitrust law and called on business leaders in major industries like steel, auto, textile, and mining to draw up codes of fair competition, which the president then signed into law. Smaller industries soon followed suit, extending NIRA codes to 90% of the non-agricultural economy. The codes regulated prices, production quotas, product standards, and labor conditions. Non-compliant companies could be prosecuted, but the government seldom pressed charges and relied instead on negotiation and persuasion, seeking what Roosevelt called a partnership in planning with business. Workers, on the other hand, would have to fight to be heard. At the government's insistence, businessmen adopted industrial codes that banned child labor and established both minimum wages and maximum hours, typically a 40-hour work week, for at least 12 to $15. But in the absence of unions, employers continued to hire and fire at will, to assign and speed up work, and to keep wage scales close to the new minimums. The New Deal's main concession to workplace democracy was NIRA Section 7A, which declared workers' right to organize and bargain collectively, free from interference, restraint, or coercion of employers. But it also soon became apparent that corporate executives did not intend to obey this part of the law, and that Washington would not force the issue. From mid-1933 through 1934, about 2.5 million men and women went out on strike, and unions sprang up by the thousands in workplaces where employers had once driven them out or where they had never formed before. In May 1933, a month before Congress enacted the NIRA, St. Louis witnessed a strike that foreshadowed battles to come. Some 1,400 women walked off their jobs in the city's nut-shelling plant to fight for a rollback of wage cuts, equal pay for black and white workers, and union recognition. None of the women had much experience in the labor movement. About three-quarters of them were African Americans risking their jobs at a moment when black unemployment rates stood well above 50%. They belonged to a newborn local of the Food Workers Industrial Union, FWIU, affiliated with the Trade Union Unity League instead of the larger and stronger AFL. For all of these reasons, employers expected to win hands down, but the strike's grassroots character gave it surprising momentum. After just 10 days, the strikers won a settlement that met their wage demands, including pay equity for black workers, and though employers still refused to recognize the FWIU, the wage victory galvanized its St. Louis branch. These patterns of struggle permeated the new labor movement that took shape during the New Deal's early years. Craft unions had become accustomed to defending only the interests of their highly skilled members and avoiding the risk of concerted action or solidarity 
with masses of unskilled workers, often suspect ethnic and racial origins. In the second half of 1933, union membership grew by 775,000, an astonishing figure given the depth of the Depression. New members formed into unions old and new as soon as the NIRA was enacted. The United Mine Workers and others sprang into action using sound trucks, posters, and handbills to spread the message of Section 7A. The President wants you to join the union. Miners grabbed membership cards as fast as the union handed them out, and many started locals without waiting for organizers to arrive. The UMW added 300,000 members and penetrated territory in Kentucky and Alabama. More gains followed in 1934. By the summer, the UMW was more than a half million strong. The organizing drives of 1933 through 34 spawned some 3,500 strikes, and unrest continued into 1935, which saw another 2,000 strikes. Strikes erupted in workplaces from factories to cotton fields, trucking depots to laundries, construction sites to office buildings, even among home workers, especially garment workers from New York to San Antonio to Mayaquiz, Puerto Rico, where inside needle workers brought outsiders into their 1933 strike over peace rates. The country is full of spontaneous strikes, wrote one labor journalist. Where one goes, one sees picket lines. Conflict was especially bitter in agriculture, where New Deal policies made labor conditions worse. To shore up farm produce prices, the government paid landowners to cultivate fewer acres. Sharecroppers and tenants were evicted. Filled hands scrambled for fewer jobs, and farm wages exempted from NIRA protection fell. Strikes by agriculture workers, meanwhile, swept through cities and towns in every part of the country. The peak came in mid-1934 when four exceptionally big uprisings grabbed national headlines. In April, when workers in an AFL federal union at the Auto Light plant in Toledo, Ohio, went on strike for union recognition for the second time in three months. The company got an injunction, then resumed production with scab employees. The Lucas County Unemployment League put half a dozen people on a picket line. More joined every day, thousands by late May, enough to keep the scabs from leaving the plant. When the pickets defied National Guard orders to disperse, the soldiers attacked, killing two and wounding hundreds. Fighting filled Toledo streets for days. After the city's unions voted for a general strike, Auto Light accepted most of its workers' demands. San Francisco's stevedores joined the AFL's International Longshoremen's Association, ILA, ILA, seeking higher pay and shorter hours for themselves and all West Coast longshore workers. Negotiations produced no results. On May 9, 1934, at 8 p.m., longshoremen walked out in every West Coast port and added a new demand, union-controlled hiring halls. Other maritime unions made their own demands. Sympathy strikes spread as far as Gulf ports like Mobile, Alabama. On July 5th, Bloody Thursday, police attacked the pickets, killing two, wounding more than a hundred. 
Local unions called a general strike. On July 16th, 127,000 workers shut down San Francisco, everything from factories to restaurants to streetcars. On July 30th, strikers lined up on the waterfront and returned to work altogether at once. Arbitrators gave the ILA most of its demands and other unions won improvements. An employers association called the Citizens Alliance had long kept Minneapolis an open shop stronghold when drivers from a communist faction, a small Teamster local, set out in 1933 to organize truckers. By spring, Local 574 had 6,000 members. On May 15th, it launched a strike against trucking employers. After a Citizens Alliance leader and another deputy were killed during a May 22nd police attack on a mass picket line at the city's central marketplace. Employers agreed to settle. When they stalled, Local 574 struck again on July 16th. Farmers from Minnesota and nearby states restocked the strike commissary. On July 20th, police shot 67 strikers on a picket line. Two died and 100,000 people attended one funeral. The governor sent 4,000 National Guards to enforce martial law, but few trucks moved. When the Alliance accepted the strikers' main demands on August 21st, thousands took to the streets for a 12-hour celebration. NIRA Section 7A was a joke in most textile mills. Workers flooded into the AFL United Textile Workers, complaining of low wages, long hours, and stretch out, assigning additional machines to operators until they worked nonstop the entire shift. On August 18th, an emergency UTW convention voted for a general textile strike to force NIRA compliance. Beginning September 1st, more than 400,000 workers idled every kind of textile mill from Alabama to Maine. In communities like Durham, North Carolina, the strikers had such widespread support that there was no violence. But violent confrontation were common in Rhode Island, and angry mobs smashed windows and looted stores in Winsocket's business district, and in South Carolina, deputies killed six strikers in Honea Path. State after state called out the National Guard, 11,000 troops in all. Another 10 strikers were killed. On September 21st, Roosevelt announced new officials would be appointed to enforce the NIRA in the industry and asked that the strike end. UTW leaders complied the next day. Nothing had been won. Employers continued to plot the NIRA, and Southern Mills often refused to rehire returning strikers. Federal officials gutted NIRA Section A with bogus interpretations of the law and lax enforcement. Within months of the NIRA's passage, the number of workers covered by ERP shot up from 1.25 million to double that figure. Employers persuaded the National Recovery Administration that these company unions were bona fide labor organizations meeting Section 7A requirements. Even when New Deal agencies favored workers, they could not enforce their decisions. The government set up labor boards to adjudicate workplace disputes and established a National Labor Relations Board in July 1934. This board, unlike its predecessor, interpreted the 
NIRA in favor of unions, but lacked any authority to enforce decisions. The final word remained with National Recovery Administration, which almost always sided with the employers. In March 1934, 200,000 auto workers were poised to strike against the open shop. AFL President William Green negotiated a truce that got them a new labor board, which denied union recognition. Still workers met a similar fate that summer, as did rubber workers the next year. Green and company also frustrated plans to parlay mass production, FLUs, into national industrial unions. The AFL Executive Council invited craft unions to raid federal locals for their skilled members, leaving the less skilled, along with the others, rejected by crafts on account of color, sex, or nationality to fend for themselves. As industrial affiliates like the United Mine Workers and Amalgamated Clothing Workers revived, their leaders called for militant organizing in mass production. The TUUL amplified the course in the winter of 1934 through 35 when its radical unions dissolved and sent their members into AFL affiliates. But labor leaders who lacked the will to organize retained the balance of power. By summer 1935, the AFL had so disappointed its new recruits in mass production that more than half a million of them had dropped out. The exodus decimated the United Textile Workers, the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, and federal unions in auto, rubber, and other industries. For its part, corporate America tried to deprive the new labor movement of popular support, force it to abandon mass action, demoralize its rank and file, and pick off its most militant leaders. Anti-labor propaganda made every militant unionist a violent agitator following orders from Moscow, every strike a Bolshevik plot. Corporate and vigilante violence supplemented legal repression. In 1933, California agribusinesses, banks, and utility companies started the Associated Farmers, which mobilized battalions of up to 2,000 goons to attack pickets and raid tent colonies. A Midwestern offshoot of the Klan, the Black Legion killed at least 10 auto union activists in 1934 through 35. After 1933, big business spent an estimated $80 million a year on agents specializing in anti-union espionage and violence. Such assaults increased the risk of organizing and undermined many a strike, but grassroots unionism persisted. In May 1935, the Supreme Court avoided the NIRASA violation of the constitutional limits on federal power. The Roosevelt administration changed the course. A second New Deal took shape, based this time on a government partnership with workers, not business. A new federal agency, the Works Progress Administration, WPA, greatly expanded public works programs to create jobs. By early 1936, the WPA had more than 3.4 million workers on its rolls. Most worked on construction projects, roads, bridges, parks, recreation centers, and other public facilities. The WPA also organized the Federal Writers Project and the Federal Theater Project, which employed writers, artists, actors, and musicians. 
It worked with the new National Youth Administration to provide part-time jobs to poor students so they could continue their education. Another second New Deal initiative addressed the free market's failure to provide economic security both short and long term. The Social Security Act established national unemployment insurance administered by the states and financed by taxes on both employers and workers. It also authorized federal grants to states to assist disabled individuals and destitute children along with their mothers. It excluded agricultural, hospital, and domestic workers. But the act was a breakthrough. For the first time, the federal government took responsibility for working people's long-term economic security. In another concession to popular anger at business magnets, Congress substantially raised federal taxes on corporations and wealthy individuals. It also passed the Public Utility Holding Company Act, breaking up gas and electric monopolies that charged exorbitant rates. The centerpiece of the Second New Deal and its most important concession to labor was the National Labor Relations Act, usually called the Wagner Act after its author, Senator Robert Wagner of New York, and signed into law on July 5, 1935. Where NIRA Section 7A had recognized unions, the Wagner Act gave them protection, though, like Social Security, it exempted agricultural, hospital, and domestic workers. It established secret ballot elections for workers deciding whether to be represented by a union. It prohibited employers from interfering with organizing and banned specific common practices, using threats, coercion, or restraint against organizing drives, sponsoring labor organizations, company unions, discrimination against workers who reported Wagner Act violations, and refusing to bargain with a union voted in by the workers. Finally, Wagner established a new National Relations Board, NLRB, to oversee the elections, hear and rule on complaints about violations of the act, and petition federal courts to enforce its rulings. When Wagner became law, the American Liberty League challenged it in court, and many employers vowed to ignore it while they waited for it to be declared unconstitutional. Workers struggling to unionize mass productions were cautiously optimistic. They had made gains without much help from the NIRA. More seemed possible now, but the... Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.